so I just want to thank you for that. This morning we'll be in Genesis chapter 9. I want to begin with a brief story and uh, asking whether any of you have ever gotten lost before in your life. Quick show of hands, anybody admit to being being lost? Yeah. Many of us have, some of us maybe haven't, but the world is a large and sometimes confusing place, and it's easy to get turned around, especially in, in a place that you don't recognize or you're not familiar with. And during my time in Champaign-Urbana, uh, there was this forest that was owned by a family at the church that I worked at, and we would take the youth there to play flashlight tag. And my first year down there in October of 2009, I, I had, you know, it was my first year, I had never been there before, so I was very unfamiliar with this stretch of forest. There were no paths, only gaps between the trees. But away we all went, running and screaming into the dark. And soon I was alone in a strange wood, screams in the distance. No cell coverage. In fact, back in 2009, I don't even think I had an iPhone yet. I still had a dumb phone. No cell coverage, no idea. Like I realized once I was out there, like how long is this game gonna be? Like how do we know when it's open? Am I, do I have to live here now? <laughs> I got turned around, got lost. I had a flashlight, of course, playing flashlight tag, but a flashlight's only so helpful. I could see what was in front of me, but I had no guide. I had no point of reference to get out. And we'll return to the, me in, the, in the, the unfamiliar forest in a little while. The Bible tells us that really we're all sort of lost in a dark and unfamiliar wood. Darkness has fallen over Eden and we can no longer find our way. A poet, writing shortly after the Second World War, describes our plight with these words. Lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night, who have never been happy or good. And many of us can feel the drag in our souls toward hopelessness, toward giving into fear, toward tremendous anger, but God's word continues to be a lamp for our feet and a light to our path. It's a flashlight, revealing traps and pitfalls, warning of obstacles, driving off the creatures of the night. And the Stolen Kingdom, this sermon series that we've been in since the end of August, has been a study of these founding stories of the Bible. In Genesis chapters 1 through 11, and we'll get to the end of that next week with the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. The triune God created the universe, filled it with creatures to share his love. He created the spiritual beings to govern the heavens and us people to govern the earth. He planted a garden temple called Eden, where man and woman would work shoulder to shoulder to expand the border of Eden across the whole planet. But that original goodness was stolen by rebel angels who tricked Adam and Eve into disobeying the Lord. They enticed Cain to murder his brother Abel, igniting a sequence of violence and revenge. They tried to steal Yahweh's promise of a serpent stomper by corrupting the human bloodline. And so the Creator brought the great floodwaters of chaos back over the world. A baptism of sorts, the Apostle Peter calls it, that cleansed away the evil, or the immediate threat of evil in those days. 
And God spared one favored family, Noah and his company, well, not his company, but Noah and company, to be new Adams and new Eves, to fill the earth and cultivate it again. But as we'll see on the second half of Genesis chapter 9, sin survived the flood, stowing away in Noah and his son's corrupted hearts. Genesis 9, 18 through 29 is another hard passage. You'll notice there are many of them in the Bible. And this is because the folks who wrote the Bible did not leave out the embarrassing bits. So often, many of us are guilty when we tell a story. We don't tell the parts that don't put us in a good light. If I were to depict for you how small that patch of forest actually was that I got lost in, it'd be less of a compelling story, so I left it out. <laughs> but the Bible doesn't do that. The folks who wrote the Bible understood that the Creator's promises, His saving grace, reaches even to the darkest parts of our lives. Nothing is outside the great reach of His forgiveness. And so let's read. If you would, please rise for the reading of Scripture. We'll be in Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. You may be seated. It is sort of stunning how quickly things unravel in this small community. I mean, I guess it shouldn't be, because, you know, that's our story as well. But just a few verses after all of this, and uh, mayhem has returned. Disarray, substance abuse, disrespect, sexual misconduct, cursing, slavery. Genesis 9 might as well be ripped from our own headlines. And this is the human plight, lost in a haunted wood, using and abusing each other. And Genesis 9 teaches us that really we bring the evil with us, right? We've talked for several weeks about how sin really is a force. It's an invasive force that comes and invades our lives, and that's true. But now that it has, right, it's infected us. We also are corrupted with it, and so we bring the stolen rule of sin along with us. Yahweh started everything over with the flood, and yet wrongdoing remains. Sin and death are problems that cannot be solved by human effort. You can't punish it out of us. You can't get rid of it by getting rid of all of the bad people or all of the undesirable people, because we're all the bad and undesirable people. Noah found favor with God, that's why he and the family were on board, 
But he obviously didn't find favor because he was free from sin. Our very nature must be redeemed and transformed in order to defeat the powers of sin and death, which is exactly what we find the Father doing through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And what happens here in Genesis 9, 10, and 11, I mean, they're all a unit, but 9, 10, and 11 are kind of a, a smaller unit here that begins to depict the, the multiplying of people, which is a good thing, that's what God wanted, but then also the splitting of people, right? We start to see the fracturing of the human family. And that continues into Genesis 10 and completes with the story of the Tower of Babel, right? Where we have the, the nations are, are split from one another and is no longer a single human family. Twice in our, in our story, it's pointed out that Ham is the ancestor of Canaan. Canaan may be a word that some of us recognize. That's the old name for the promised land, and it's the name of the people who were living there by the time the Israelites came back from Exodus, or came back from the Exodus, and who they fought under Joshua's conquest. So it's an anticipation of this coming conflict, right? That, oh, by the way, this guy, you know, these are where the Canaanites came from, and they've been our enemies the whole time. And it's almost like these verses are saying, you leave humanity alone for five minutes, and this is what happens. In Genesis 9 of the genealogy of chapter 10, we get the foundations are laid for warfare, animosity, rivalry, bloodshed, slavery, oppression, and injustice. Right? All our friends coming up are all in Genesis chapter 10, Babylon and Assyria and the Philistines and the Greeks even the Romans in a distant way, right? It's kind of a preview of like, here, here's everybody that's going to come and fight. The spiritual beings are not at the forefront of the story because they don't have to be. The sad lesson of human history is that if they can trick us to harm one another, they don't have to show up to directly harm us. Back to me being lost in that forest in 2009. I obviously made it out, otherwise I wouldn't, you know, be here. I'd be some wild man roaming the wilderness south of Champaign-Urbana. Probably would have been a fine career path as well. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. But I didn't get out because I figured it out. I didn't get out by my own power. I would have eventually found a road, I suppose, or come to the end of the forest, gotten a cell signal, somehow called for help, made my way back. But probably much later into the night, half frozen to death. I had a flashlight, but the flashlight didn't help me get out of the woods. It wasn't a guide out. What I didn't know was that at the end of the round of flashlight tag, they would turn on all the headlights of all the cars that we'd driven out there, right? So suddenly there was this wall of light along one side of the forest so that everybody knew which direction to go to get out. So I think really the Word of God lights our paths in both of those ways. In one sense, we carry God's wisdom, His instructions like a flashlight, so we can move along the paths that are twisted and rutted, you know, have traps laid in them of our lives here. But I think that God's promises, the good news of Jesus, acts like the headlights, that wall of light, pointing out the goal and the destination, giving us the direction that we're supposed to be headed. A passage like Genesis 9 illuminates the traps and challenges right in front of us, while the good news of Jesus keeps us pointed in the just and right direction. As Christians, really there's a, there's a distinctively Christian way that we're supposed to read the Bible, right? Because we're not the only ones for whom these are holy words, right? The Bible's being read in Jewish, well, was read in Jewish synagogue yesterday. You know, Muslims accept 
parts of the Bible of Scripture as well. But obviously, we're reading it in a distinctively Christian way when we're reading it in the light of Jesus. And that's how he taught us to read it. The Gospel of Luke talks about that. Not every verse is a direct prophecy, but all of it, in some way, gives us another angle, another way of understanding who Jesus was and, and what he accomplished for us and what God is doing through him. And it's a common error in Christian history to read the Old Testament and just sort of forget about the whole Jesus part of things. And people have misused this passage and other passages in the Old Testament, I think, to great harm because they haven't read it in the light of Jesus. And I think that this is important just to briefly point out that this passage in Genesis 9 has been used to justify the mistreatment and enslavement of African people in America, in Europe, not lately, but definitely in the past. And the, the line of thinking went like this. African people are descended from Ham. Ham was cursed to be a slave. Therefore, God approves of the descendants of Ham being enslaved. This is a grave misreading of the text. Jesus came to set us free. He came to proclaim freedom for the captives. And that means that this passage cannot mean that God endorses slavery as Christian readers or looks on any group of people as being more valuable than another. Yahweh is the God of freed slaves. That's how the whole nation of Israel got started, was being freed from slavery in Egypt. And Paul tells us that the gospel dissolves the distinction between free people and slave. I think that's just important to point out. Not that any of you believe it, but just that it's been abused that way in the past. Like I said earlier, this passage is the final piece, or the beginning of the final piece of the Bible's prologue, if you will. Genesis 1 through 11 really is the kind of the setting the stage for much of what will come later. And so much of the later biblical story we can find anticipated in these first 11 chapters. And since chapter 3, the whole thing has been one disaster after another. Human and spiritual rebellion feeding off of one another until with the Tower of Babel, the whole world is scattered, cut off, exiled under demonic rule. But it's right then, at the very bottom of that death spiral, in Genesis chapter 12, which we'll get to in January, that Yahweh begins his long work of rescue in the family of Abraham. Just as he called Noah and his family out of the floodwaters, he called Abraham and his promised family out of the flood of nations. Right? You read through Genesis chapter 10, and it's like you're standing under a waterfall of names in places that you don't know, you know who, who these people are, and there's just so much. And God chooses one man and his family out of that cataract. Abraham's tribe, the Israelites, will exist for the sake of all the other tribes. A family for all the other families. A nation that all the other nations will find blessing in, as God promises Abraham in chapter 12. And I think that part of what that tells us in kind of the unified revelation of Scripture is that we should not forget that the work, the struggle of racial reconciliation is at the very heart of what God is doing in the world, right? It is the result of evil that we are split into the nations that oppose one another and the races and all these other things that, that fight for different resources and things like that. None of that is what the Creator desired. And so we see that the work of bringing people from all tribes and nations and tongues and languages into one new human family, that goes to the very heart of the good news. And certainly, Different movements and politicians seize on this for their own purposes. Companies try to make money off of it in various despicable ways. 
But the work is God's idea. And we, and we can't forget that. Over and again, throughout the scriptures, Yahweh says that he is making a new humanity out of the old one. A new family that can include all families. Racial hatred and prejudice meet their end on the cross. And it's a reckoning I think we will continue to face long after the pandemic is over, long after we're through our current political challenges. But God is with us in that, right? It's his work. And we're coming to the end of a difficult year, and you know this. We bear the scars of it, physically, mentally. Like Noah and his sons, we are seeing our social bonds, some of our relationships beginning to unravel. And the enemy would like nothing better than for our nation, our churches, our families, and even we ourselves to disintegrate, right? To break apart, to fall apart, like Noah's family and their many descendants. And Genesis 9 causes us to confront the effects of our disobedience and failure. How much pain and misery would we avoid if we just didn't make the sorts of mistakes that they made in Genesis chapter 9? Now, life is hard all on its own. And being a good person does not spare us from sickness or accident or calamity. But when we take stock of our damaged relationships, of our interior anguish, much of that is caused because somebody messed up. Either us or someone close to us. And I think Genesis 9 is an invitation to reflect on our own actions and decisions, the consequences that flow from them. And we can look at a story like this, and I think it's, this is a good exercise when we're reading the Bible, especially for, for hard or difficult passages like this, and to sort of do a thought experiment of what would have happened if they had done differently. Right? What would have happened if they had done differently? Of course, we don't know, you know but I think that it's a, it's a useful thing. What would have happened if they had made different choices? If they had made choices that honor the Lord? Noah, I think, would not have gotten drunk off the wine that he had just finished growing. Ham would have honored his father, like his other two sons. Noah would have asked for blessing and reconciliation for everybody, rather than cursing him. So I think we think about ourselves, and I have a, a few thoughts for us. And I think one of our greatest needs for wisdom right now is how we conduct ourselves online. And I know that many of our Calvary family never do anything on the internet, and, and God bless those of you who, who that's the case for. But for the rest of us, it's a bit of a mixed bag. It's a bit of a minefield. Similar to wine, it has its proper uses, but it is very easy to abuse and be addicted to in various ways. I think we need to take a step back and remember that we don't know everything. And I say this to myself first, right, before I say it to any of you. We don't know everything, and we were talking about this in Sunday school. We're not qualified to judge. I think so much in our culture right now wants us to sentence the people we disagree with more or less to death, right? To condemn them, to say, oh, well, they're morons. You know, how could they possibly think that? Or why do they do such and such a thing? I think we have to step back and remember that we're not the judge. I think we have to try and exercise greater wisdom in the things that we read, 
the things that we're exposed to on social media and the things that we trust. I don't care about your particular opinions. I'm not, you know, saying this to those of us that are, you know, that lean one way or lean. I, this is to all of us. I don't care. I'm not speaking to your particular opinions. I'll continue to love you people no matter how crazy you are. And I hope that you continue to love me no matter how crazy I am. I'm not speaking to the particular opinions, but I'm speaking to our hearts. I'm speaking to our witness as Jesus' people. I think we also need to exercise wisdom in, in what we post. I also want to make it clear that I'm not, uh, I'm not thinking of any of you in particular. I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook or whatever else, so it's not that I saw somebody post something I disagreed with and then went home and wrote this part of the sermon, and I hope you believe that. But I do think we need to, all of us, including me, need to exercise wisdom in what we post. This is a free country that affords us freedom of speech. That's a good thing for the most part. But I think that we do need to remember that Christians are held to a higher law than the Constitution. And the Bible tells us that we do not have freedom to say whatever we want. We are not free to sin with our words, whether spoken or typed. And I think that sometimes we think with social media, well, it doesn't really matter. Nobody's listening. It's my thing, so I'll just say what I want to say. And you're right. Like each of us individually, you know, it's not like we post something to Facebook and, you know, the world burns down. But I think that it does something to us, right? There's a cost to our souls associated with these things. And the Lord is quite clear that we are not to lie. We're not to promote lies. If you don't know something is true, then you don't know whether it's the truth or a lie. We're not to slander people. We're not to gossip. We're not to tear other people down or use our words to mock. Jesus says in Matthew 12, On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. And look that up. Matthew 12, verse 36. Puts me in the fear and trembling. We need to be held in judgment for every careless word we speak and... I assume every careless word we type. Brothers and sisters, why fertilize hatred and pride in your soul? Why alienate and strain relationships? So you can broadcast your opinion? I think it's that's far less far less necessary than actually doing what we can to comfort, encourage, and witness to Jesus. Let us make wise choices about our presence online and what we post and what we promote and what we read. I think secondly, our households are under tremendous strain for various reasons right now. People are sick. There's different economic difficulties. But I think another aspect of this that has grown worse is the strain that happens when families disagree about different matters right i think that some of us have lost friendships or seen relationships be strained because of political things and thanksgiving other holidays are notorious for tense and awkward relationships with relatives right our crazy uncles show up and start saying things you know how the nazis are still alive on the moon or whatever it is you know like okay <laughs> You probably have relatives, maybe people quite close to you, with whom you strongly disagree, strongly disagree, and who truly are gravely mistaken 
about some of the issues and challenges facing our community. I think my encouragement this morning is that we must approach those loved ones with a priority on honor and respect, even if they're dead wrong. A priority on honor and respect. We must recover the ability to respectfully disagree with one another. And sometimes we just have to let people be wrong, at least for the time being. And that's very difficult, I think, depending on what it is. But sometimes we just have to let people be wrong. Lastly, again, as we all know, the pandemic has claimed many victims that never caught the coronavirus. We'll be reckoning with the mental, psychological toll of this for a long time. And I want to say, and this isn't a, it's not a side comment, but I just want to say here at the beginning, that if you or a loved one are facing true and extreme mental unwellness, if you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, if you feel crippled by anxiety or depression, outbursts of violent anger, and I urge you to get the help that you need for that, the professional help that you need. Reach out to me or to one of the deacons and we will help you get the help that you need. We will walk that road with you. But I just wanna make it very clear that that level of, of mental anguish or mental illness I think is greater than we are resourced to help deal with. We can be part of that, but I just wanna urge you to, to get the help that you need for that and we will help you get the help that you need. But I think that all of us are running more stressed, more agitated, and more uncertain than we normally would be, right? And I think you see that in a variety of ways. And really all of this, brothers and sisters, should drive us to prayer. I think that this is, this is a time of testing for Calvary, for churches across the world. This is a time of testing. Shall we be found to be a prayerful, respectful, wise people? Shall we be found to have multiplied or tried to multiply blessings, even this dark and confusing season? I hope so. I think we have so far. I think I'm going to continue to urge us to press us on to continue to do that. My hope is that we as individuals and as a church will come through this more prayerful, more respectful, more wise. The good news is that Ham's cursed descendants are in Jesus' family tree. There are Canaanites who helped bring the Messiah into the world. The good news is that Jesus redeems us from every curse. Nothing, none of the things I just talked about is beyond his reach, beyond the reach of his grace and his forgiveness and his transforming power. He has not left us alone to deal with these things. He has given us one another. He has given us the power of his Holy Spirit. Genesis 9 and 10 are, like I said, the beginning of this last part of sort of the Bible's prologue, setting the stage for all that is to come. That even though spiritual beings and humans have rebelled and destroyed so much, the Creator never abandoned his world. And while he sent many angels, kings, and powerful prophets, when Yahweh himself finally came, he did so in weakness and humility. A baby boy, born to a family displaced by imperial oppression, on the run from a murderous king, about as weak and vulnerable as one can get. 
The good news is that Yahweh took up a body. He didn't, he didn't keep us at arm's length. He didn't stay far away. He showed right up in the middle of it. He became local, was born into a particular family, had brothers and sisters. Jesus walked along streets with names in villages that you could go visit today. Well, maybe not today. They won't let you in. But at some point in the indeterminate future. And he used the very stuff of this earth, mud and bread and wine, to convey the meaning of our salvation. Ultimately, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath against the power of sin. He drank it for Noah's sake. He drank it for yours. He received the curse of Canaan upon his own head. For the Son of Man came to serve, to be a slave. He is the good elder brother, taking the heat for us, taking the heat for our mistakes. He's looking out for us eternally. I want to close with a few verses from Hebrews. For it was fitting that God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. In his name, amen.